We are on the eighth chapter of Ezekiel. This really encompasses eight chapter eight through eleven, but we're not going to get through all that in one time. So we'll just take on the eighth chapter here. There are some things, of course, you all know that you just don't mix. And here in the eighth chapter of Ezekiel, we're going to see some things that God had warned them about. Do not mix. And they mixed them anyway. And so basically he is telling them in this chapter, you have mixed them and you are going to pay the price. In verse one, and it came to pass in the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I sat in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me, that the hand of the Lord fell upon me there. We have not been given a time since chapter one. Chapter 1, we found out it was in the fifth year, the fourth month of uh, the, the exile. So this being the sixth year and the sixth month, that would put us about 14 months from chapter 1. Now, chapter 1 was his calling. Chapter 2 and 3, of course, we went on with the uh, object lesson where he was laying on his side. That went on for the 420 day, 430 days total. 390 days on one side and then another 40 days on the other side for 430 years. If you look at the Jewish month, the Jewish month is not like ours. It is a set 30 days. So if you look at 14 months, you'll be looking at exactly 420 days. If we're looking at 420 days and his laying on the side occurred over a 430 day period more than likely the events of this chapter occur at the end near the end of the 430 days which would lead us to remember we were speculating before does he do it all day or does he do it for a period of time during the day that would seem to indicate that he did it for a period of time each day and not for the full day and then um, the elders of Israel of course were here they were they were present they were either made it a regular basis to come while this demonstration was going on or they had some kind of a matter that they wanted to discuss with them. So, sixth year, sixth month, fifth day of the month, as I sat in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me and the hand of the Lord God fell upon me there. Um, verse 2, Then I looked and there was a likeness like the appearance of fire from the appearance of his waist downward, fire and from his waist upward, like the appearance of brightness, like the color of amber. He stretched out the form of a hand and took me by a lock of my hair and the Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem, to the door of the north gate of the inner court where the seat of the image of jealousy was, which provokes to jealousy. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there like the vision that I saw in the plain. So when we have the vision of the wheels, as it's sometimes called, from chapter 1, which was the vision of the glory of God, that same vision he saw there is what he sees here. Where he saw it in in chapter 1 was coming out of the north. It was not in Israel. It was coming out of the north area and it seemed to be moving towards a direction of Israel. The um, status here is that that same image is now 420 days later in Israel at the temple. 
He says here <clears throat> that it was to the north, to, to the door of the north gate of the inner court where the seat of the image of jealousy was, which provokes the jealousy. Now he has not seen this image yet, but he knows it's there. It's kind of like if you come up to a very familiar place, uh, an intersection, and you know the intersection without seeing it, you know it's there. Oh, well, there's this tree there, there's this uh, gas station there. You know the things that are there because you have been there. So as he's coming up on it, he sees the north gate, he knows the north gate, and he knows what's at the north gate. Because when he was there, this image was there. So he is going right right now, at this point, he's going back on his, his recollection of what was going on at the temple. It still is going on, but he does, has not seen that image yet. And behold, the glory of God of Israel was there, like the vision that I saw in the plain. Um, now, what's interesting is uh, you're going to see in this that despite all of, <laughs> all of the abominations, and he's going to list four abominations that are present on the temple site. Despite that, he still is there. He still takes his spirit and puts it there. Now, of course, his purpose is different. When his spirit was on the temple before, it was to minister and to bless the people. Right now, it's to judge. Now, the glory of God had been in the northern area. It was coming out of the north, and now it is over at the temple. It would seem that it has followed that path from the north all the way down here here to the, to the temple. And if you'll pull up our image that I gave you. We're going to go back and forth to this. This is the uh, picture of the temple. And this is the north gate. This is the gate of question. This is the most honorable gate of all the gates that they have. The reason for that is directly north of the temple is the palace. So this is uh, sometimes referred to as the royal gate. There's a lot of names actually the north gate is called. One of them is the royal gate. The north gate, and we're going to come up with another name here that he's going to call it in just a little bit. We'll, uh, we'll wait till he, he pulls that in. So the, uh, the, the north gate is up over in, in this area, and this is what he is referring to for the north gate. This is uh, the site of most of the activities going to be here and in this, this area around here. Now some of the places that put the image of God, the glory of God, put it down around in this area. All right. <clears throat> in... Um, Let's go to verse 5. We're going to see another name here for it. And he said to me, Son of man, lift your eyes now toward the north. So I lifted my eyes toward the north, and there, north of the altar gate, now it's called the altar gate, is exactly the same thing as the north gate. The reason it's called the altar, altar gate is in Leviticus chapter 1 and verse 11. This is, um, this is where they sacrificed that, when they sacrificed the animals, it was closest to the north gate. And so they would sometimes refer to this as the altar gate. Son of man, lift up your eyes now towards the north. So I lifted my eyes toward the north. And there, north of the altar gate, was this image of jealousy in the entrance. So it's north of the altar gate. In other words, outside. Put that image back up there again for us. It's going to be north of the, of the north gate. So it's going to be up over in here. It's going to be put it into the outer court. Here's the inner court. The outer court is where the people could come. The inner court is where the priest would go. And of course you have the holy place and the most holy place. The most holy place is a place that the high priest would go into once a year. 
Furthermore, he said to me, verse 6, Son of man, do you see what they are doing? The great abominations that the house of Israel commits here to make me go far from my sanctuary. Now turn again, you will see greater abominations. So the reason that he has gone from the sanctuary is because of what Israel has done. And so he says, I want you to see what they have done. Now some of this is he has already seen, but he's going to see this now in a vision. He is not physically there. He right now is physically with the, with the captives. Physically, he is with the elders. They're watching him. He has gone into this trance-like uh, state, having this vision where he says the uh, he was he was picked up by a lock of hair. One lock of hair, and he was just uh, escorted. He said he was between the heaven and the earth, and he was taken from where he was all the way over to Judah and taken over to this this gate. So he's seeing this in the spirit. But apparently it's very true to what is going on. If if he's not physically there in spirit, then um, he has seen it as uh, literally as as what, what's going on in there. Now this image of jealousy in verses 5 and 6 here, a couple of things it could be. One, it could be the queen of heaven, which is denounced in Jeremiah 7.18 and verse 44, 17-30. This uh, queen of heaven. The queen of heaven is never spoken of very well. In the Bible, it was an idolatrous worship, and it was it was not good. Uh, every once in a while, we when we're down in Florida and we're driving around Orlando, we always seem to go by this particular uh, church that is uh, uh, calls uh, Mary Queen of the Universe. That's the name of the church. I said, boy, I wonder if they know <laughs> what the, a very similar term like that is used for. But um, we never went in there and talked doctrine with them. <laughs> we just let the uh, just drove on by, but every time we go by there, it says, "Oh yeah, there's that, uh, there's that place again." Now that could be one thing that it is, something of the Queen of Heaven. Uh, this is denounced in Jeremiah chapter seven and verse eighteen, and chapter forty-four, seventeen through thirty. He is denouncing the Queen of Heaven, so it seemed like there was something set up around the temple for the Queen of Heaven. The other thing that it could be is, of course, this uh, Baal Asherah uh, uh, cult that was going on. Manasseh had put a wooden image of the Asherah in the house of the Lord. This is in, if you want to write this down, this is in 2 Kings 21 and verse 7, if you want to look that up. Also in 2 Chronicles, let me read that to you again just in case you missed it. 2 Kings 21 and verse 7 for that one. In 2 Chronicles 33 and verse 15, it tells us that Manasseh uh, later removed the image. But it must have reappeared because Josiah takes it out and burns it in 2 Kings 23 and verse 6. So apparently this uh, Asherah image keeps being set up and taken down and set up and taken down. That's going on. From Ezekiel's description, uh, it could be that one of Josiah's successors may have set up another one. And surely we would not put that past any of the, the successors of Josiah, because all of them worshipped idols. So they would have set this up by the northern gate. So this is the first abomination that they took either an Asherah image or something about the Queen of Heaven and put it to the north of the north gate. That's the first one. Verse 7. So he brought me to the door of the court and when I looked there was a hole in the wall. And then he said to me, Son of man, dig into the wall and when I dug into the wall there was a door. 
And he said to me, Go in and see the wicked abominations which they are doing there. So I went in and saw, and there every sort of creeping thing, abominable beast, and all the idols of the house of Israel portrayed all around on the walls. And there stood before them seventy men of the elders of the house of Israel. In the midst of, uh, stood Jazaniah, the son of Shaphan. Each man had a censer in his hand, and a thick cloud of incense went up. Then he said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel do in the dark? Every man in the room of his idols, for they say, The Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. So to get to this next one, this one is hidden. The image is set outside the north gate. It's not hidden. You can see it. But this one is hidden. It is something that he, as at this point, didn't know. Either that it started after he had left or he was not able to, to have seen it. So what this was, was some kind of a room that had no windows. It was dark inside. And they didn't want people looking in to see what was going on. <clears throat> but he said, I'm going to show you how, you how you can see this. And so he said, son of man, dig into the wall. He said there was first off a hole in the wall. When he saw the hole in the wall, he, he dug into the wall and then he found a door. And so then he opens the door and it goes through. God says, go in and see the abominations which they are doing. Verse 10, so I went in and saw and there every sort of creeping thing, abominable beast and all the idols of the house of Israel portrayed all around on the walls. So what you have here is that on the walls of this room are pictures of all sorts of creeping things, animals, and the idols of Israel. Now, the reason that they're probably on the wall is the animals that are depicted here, if you, well, if we go back to this, they put them in a room that is sealed off because they don't want certain people to see them. This is the worship that's going on that they want to do and that they are engaged in and much of uh, much of them are engaged in this but they don't want everyone to know about it. So what kind of worship do they not want people to know about when they blatantly put the image of idols in the courts of uh, of Jehovah? Who are they hiding it from? Very good possibility is that Israel has constantly had this uh, desire to go back to Egypt and to have Egypt deliver them from Babylon. Well, Egypt worships different gods than the Babylonians do. And it is very likely that worshiping the Egyptian gods would have been made illegal by the Babylonians. So if Israel put them in a secret room and put them on the walls, more than likely, this is worship that was outlawed in the land by a power they saw as higher than God's. Isn't that amazing? If you put them on the walls, I don't know that this is true or not. This is just something I kind of think about. If you could have tapestries all along the walls and if the wrong people came in, you could drop the tapestries and it would seem like the walls are there for the tapestries, whatever image is on them, but they would hide the images that are behind them. And uh, if, if Babylonian people came in to see what was going on there, they could just see the tapestries and, and afterwards they could raise them up and once again worship the, the Egyptian gods or whatever it was that they were doing. And God saw this as an abomination. Now, they were not just worshiping false idols around the land. That wasn't good enough. They had to bring it into the temple. 
So they bring this type of worship into the temple area. I mean, that's just... That's just... I cannot imagine doing that. But that's what they did. So there was every sort of creepy thing, abominable beast, and all the idols of the house of Israel portrayed all around on the walls. And there stood before them 70 men of the elders of the house of Israel. So this is not a small room. You get 70 people inside. And in their midst, Jezaniah, the son of Shaphan. So the 70 elders here, uh, it could possibly be that the number is symbolic. It may be a literal 70. Now, you remember, remember the Sanhedrin has 70 people in it. This is not a Sanhedrin. This is way before the time of the Sanhedrin when it was, when it was created. The Sanhedrin doesn't come for a long, long, long time. Sanhedrin was going on in Jesus' day, but it's not going on in this day. So they have nothing like that. But the 70 might be, 7 represents the uh, number of perfection and 10 represents the number for completion. Multiply them out, you get 70. You'll see this in, uh, I think the reference I have for that is in Numbers chapter 11, verse 16. If you want to write that down. Numbers 11 and verse 16, you're going to see that 70, he said, gather to me 70 men of the elders of Israel. So he was looking at that point, this is back in Numbers for 70 of them, to be representative of the people of Israel. That was God asking for it. They uh, Either they had 70 as representative, they just happened to have 70, or God in the vision had 70 people in their representative. But it's showing you that this worship that's going on here is pretty common. And it's going on pretty, but with a with a number of the people that are there. Now take a look at this in verse 11. And there stood before them 70 men of the elders of the house of Israel, and in their midst stood Jazaniah. Now it's interesting that of all the people, he's going to call this one out. How many know who Jazaniah is? I didn't think so. It's not a name that you really study too much about or hear too much about. But uh, just in case you're wondering, he's the son of Shaphan. Does that help you? <laughs> that doesn't seem to, to help us too much. But it, it sure meant a lot to him, did it? And it will mean a lot more to you too once you see where he's, uh, he's at in Scripture. It would seem that Shaphan was basically what we would call a um, Secretary of State for King Josiah. So he was fairly prominent in the kingdom. And he um, uh, was, as, as far as we can tell, he was a God-fearing man. And his family was a God-fearing uh, family. And they were a very prominent family in the nation of Israel. Now his son, this is one of his sons, and this, this one son was involved in the abomination. But he had another son. That other son was kind of like a right-hand man for, for Jeremiah. And he is named quite prominently in the book of Jeremiah and the things that, that Jeremiah would do. Uh, his name is Ahikam. A-H-I-K-A-M. I'll give you one reference for him. Jeremiah 26 and 24, but I found several. You will find uh, places there. He was a very influential supporter of Jeremiah. So you have 70 people. Among them, we see that this very prominent person of a, or this person of a very prominent family, very powerful family in, in Israel. And it's interesting that he was still there because you remember who was taken out in captivity? 
all the upper class. And yet somehow he stayed behind. Not exactly sure why that would have, why that would have been. Oh, I didn't give you this reference, but if you wanted a reference for Shaphan, he would be 2 Kings 22 and verse 3. If you want to look him up. S-H-A-P-H-A-N. And that would be in 2 Kings 22 and verse 3. You can see him make an appearance. So, this, this vision that he sees here would show us that it's pretty prominent. The number of people that were worshipping these things on the wall, or which we could suppose is Egyptian idols. There were a number of people that were out there to, to do this. I saw this note, um, just in the different things I was reading. Only two times in the history of the world have God's people been in a majority on this earth. First time was at creation. The second time was after the flood. That's about the only two times you can find where God's people were the majority on the earth. That is, that is a shame. So this was done in the dark. It seems to have done in, uh, uh, outside the view of probably not Israelites, but probably those that were from Babylon, because of course they would have people from Babylon who would be walking around making sure that things are, are going okay. And if they didn't like something that was going on, something that shouldn't be going on, then they would report, they would change, they would do whatever they had to do. Verse 12, Then he said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel do in the dark? Every man in the room of his idols. For they say, The Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. Hmm. It's interesting the things that people say, isn't it? Very often, what they say isn't consistent with what they do. If they feel that the Lord has forsaken the land and that the problems with the land are the result of the Lord, what good does it do to go against them? If they feel that the Lord has forsaken the land and these bad things have come upon them because He has forsaken the land, do they not think that God would also see them? How do do you come up with that mentality that God's uninvolved and God doesn't see us? I believe that He's there. I believe He exists, but I don't believe He can see us. I believe if we get into this house here and close the doors and the windows, He won't be able to see us. How do you get to that to that place? <laughs> Somehow they do. So this is done in secret, but Ezekiel is uh, given access to it, and he's told how to get in there and to to check this out. Well, let's go on here and. Verse 13. And he said to me, Turn again, and you will see greater abominations than they are doing. So we have first off that we have the uh, the the image that is set up. We then have that there are worshipping animals. Here's the third abomination. Verse 13, And he said to me, Turn again and you will see greater abominations than they are doing. So he brought me to the door of the north gate of the Lord's house. 
And to my dismay, women were sitting there weeping for Tamaz. Then he said to me, Have you seen this, O son of man? Turn again. You will see greater abominations than these. Now this is called mourning for Tamaz. Weeping or mourning. He was a Sumerian god of vegetation. It was a popular mythology that he died and became god of the underworld. Ishtar was his wife and she went after him into the underworld which caused the vegetation to die in the summer and winter. The morning was a longing for the return of earthly abundance and the eventual revival of Tammuz was marked by the return of spring and fertility of the land. So this cult had associated with it this uh, morning ritual which we see here that this, this person was doing and there was licentious fertility rituals that they would do celebrating the return of spring. <clears throat> so when he sees this, let's read it over again. So he brought me to the door in verse 14 of the north gate of the house, the Lord's house and to my dismay women were sitting there weeping for Tamaz. So they could go anywhere in the land and do their morning ritual morning, not, not a.m. morning just their, their weeping morning ritual for this particular God. But no, they, they come over here to the house of God and do it there. And God says, you could have gone anywhere and done this. No, you've got to come to my house and do it in my courts. And so he says, to, have you seen this, O son of man? Verse 15, turn again, you will see greater abominations than these. Well, that's the third one. So each one is progressive. He starts off with the image at the gate. Goes on with the worship of animals in secret. Probably Egyptian gods. Goes on to the worship of nature. Done in the open. In God's courts. And then we get to verse 16. And so he brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house. And there at the door of the temple of the Lord. Between the porch and the altar. Were about 25 men with their backs toward the temple of the Lord. And their faces toward the east. And they were worshiping the sun toward the east. <clears throat> now these men, these 25 men, are in the inner court. It is assumed they are priests. But it is not stated in the Word of God. The reason they are, it is assumed that they are priests is because this is the place that the priests are supposed to go. Not the people. The priests are supposed to be there. Now the number 25 is significant. David divided the priesthood into 24 groups. Once you add the high priest, you now have 25. The number 25 represents the priesthood. But these men are not called priests. Again, this, they may call themselves priests. But this is God's vision. And they are just men. But they are inhabiting the inner court. The place where the priest were to go about and do the, the work of the temple, work of the altar. But now look at this. So he brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house, and there at the door of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about 25 men with their backs towards the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east. And they were worshiping the sun toward the east. These priests, these people, 
acting as priests in the inner court of God turned their back to the temple to turn their faces to the sun and to worship the sun god from the inner court of the temple. And God put this down as the, of the four, this was the greatest abomination that they had done. They were worshiping the sun god. Who is it that worships the sun god the most that we know? Babylon may, we might do it too, but we sure all know one nation that did it. And that was the Egyptians. God came against their sun god, Ra. And showed that his son, their sun god was nothing. But here Israel is worshiping the sun god with these men and their backs toward the temple and their faces toward the east. Now God sees this. We're getting this the vision that God has. As God's looking on this, He is, He is describing it. He is showing it to them. God sees it as turning their back on Him to turn their faces towards the sun God. Now this is um, not the only time that we have seen this problem with the sun God. In 2 Kings chapter 23, 5 and 11, Josiah in his reformation had to destroy horses dedicated to the sun and the chariots of the sun. That's in 2 Kings 23, 5 and 11. Hezekiah also dealt with the same problem in 2 Chronicles 29, 6-7. This is not the only time that pagan worship had become part of the temple. But God's house, which was dedicated to the worship of God, has seen pagan worship come into it. <clears throat> Verse 17, And he said to me, Have you seen this, O son of man? Is it a trivial thing that a house of Judah to commit the abominations which they commit here? For they have filled the land with violence, then they have returned to provoke me to anger. Indeed, they put the branch to their nose, therefore I also will act in fury. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear them. So God calls this, and he's, Ezekiel is called very often the son of man. Have you seen this, O son of man? Is it a trivial thing to the house of Judah? To them, this is a trivial thing. This is not a big deal to commit these abominations which they commit here. Now, we, we look at this and we say, can you imagine doing that kind of a thing in the house of God? In the courts of His temple? And we would, we would shun that. But can you imagine getting to the place where you are so cold to the things of God that you don't even bat an eyelash at building a secret room on the premise of the temple? On the temple mount there. To build a secret room and worship idols, which if they are Egyptian idols, these are idols that God embarrassed in the templex. And you would do this. You would take an image of Asherah or whatever it is they took and put that right outside of the north gate. You would have worship of the sun god. Right there, turn your backs on the 
worship of God, turn your backs on the temple. And God says, is this a trivial thing to them? Is that what they think of the power of God? That they just treat this as such? What they basically has done, have done was they took the worship of pagans, the Asherah, the sun god, all these different things, with all those, the room with all the, the abominations that were there, the worship of nature and Tamas, and they brought all these things into the temple. And they mixed them. They mixed God, even if they were still, even if there were still some priests that were doing the, the worship of God, they had to do it and share the courtyard with all these other things. If that was even still going on. I'm, I'm not telling you that it was. If, if it was, if there were still some in there who were maintaining the, the temple and doing the, the things that were there. He says, is it a trivial thing that you would have done this? Some of us may look at this and they'll say, well, it's just part of the house of God. It was just over there by the north gate and, and over there in the corner and then over there in the, in the courtyard. Uh, it doesn't talk about the, the, the holy place or the holy, the, the holiest of places. We're not talking about any of those kind of things. It's just, uh, over here in the, on the outskirt part. Well, one more thing we want to look at here. And I believe it's over in verse 17. For they have filled the land with violence and they have returned to provoke me to anger. Indeed, they put the branch to their nose. Does that make sense to anybody? <laughs> so that's one interpretation of it. Some people think they thumb their nose to God. Um, it could be an obscure ritual that has reference here. There's a fire worshippers would hold a branch of twigs they called a barsam in their hands as they worshiped the sacred fire. And then they would hold the twigs up to their mouths as they prayed. There's uh, some early Jewish commentators who translated this as they put forth a stench before my nose. Well, either way that you look at it, what, what God is saying is you guys did this and you did it to yourselves. I had nothing to do with it. It's all on you. You guys did it. Nobody made you. You just did it. Well, there's a lot of correspondence again with this in the church of today. Because it seems that a lot of churches are taking a lot of pagan practices and mixing it right in. Sometimes we don't even uh, we don't even understand all of it. Sometimes we look on on some of the practices that have come into the to the church, and we say, "Well, you know, it's just uh, <clears throat> we're just doing that to make unsaved people feel comfortable, or whatever it might be." We have to be careful. We cannot compromise the the word of God. We know that today in modern society, here in America, churches are twisting the gospel, they're watering it down, or they're cutting it out altogether. Now, it didn't seem like too many people saw it, but a couple of days ago, I put up a, a link on the church Facebook page to Rick Renner, Rick Renner teaching. And he went through and was talking about some of the things. He travels a lot more to churches than, than I do, and I was interested in his uh, take on, on some, of the, some of the churches and some of the things that are going on. How many people did get a chance to see that? 
All right, if you want to, going back up there, I think it was Tuesday I put it up. Just go to the church Facebook page, scroll down a little bit, you'll, you'll see it. You can click on that, you can, you can listen to it. Some denominations mix Christianity with false religions, and they have no problem with it. Uh, we told you before, one church locally we called, and uh, they, they worshipped all kinds of gods, including Jesus. And my wife's comment to them was, at the same time, and it was sometimes. <laughs> oh, man. But how's that any different? You build a house, you call it the house of God, and we bring some things in that shouldn't be there. When Jesus was uh, on the earth, and he came to the temple, and he saw the money changers, and he said, you've taken the house of my father. You turned it into a den of thieves. Because in there, they were shortchanging the people in the money exchangers and uh, selling people things at high rates to make money because you have to get one of our lambs. You can't bring one of your own. And he didn't, uh, he didn't like that mixing going on in, in the synagogue or the temple. He didn't like these kind of things to be going on. Well, let's take a look at these four areas that we have. First off, we had the uh, the area of bringing in some images and 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 having no problem with that. Sometimes churches have inadvertently brought in images not knowing what they were, not knowing what they were doing. <clears throat> and even if they're not images, I've, we've mentioned made mention of some of these things. Uh, when the uh, people took something from the Word of God that seems to have been a good thing in the uh, uh, oh, the ram's horn that was uh, used by the Israelites. The shofar. And we have some places that take the shofar and they have, diff- they have it blown in the, in the church services. I'm talking today. I'm talking in the United States. They, they do this. And uh, we've come across some. and uh, I, didn't, I didn't do it. People I know did so. And now uh, they've gotten... Uh, a whole book of printed material about how you're supposed to blow the shofar to call upon the Holy Spirit to do certain things. Or you blow on the shofar to put a stop to the enemy. And of course, even in this area, we've seen some people do some things with flags. And if you wave the flags a certain way, you call upon the Holy Spirit to do certain things. And if you wave the flags in another way, uh, you'll come against the forces of evil. No, that's what the name of Jesus is for. And people are trying to... It, we, we had at one time, I, we all remember, so people have been around here for a while, we had at one time, here in this church, somebody brought in a flag. They knew I wouldn't put up with it. And so they snuck into the back of the church while we were having special services going on. And they started waving the flag. I got wind of something moving. I went back over there and said, what are you doing? Well, uh, he tried to explain it to me. He said, not here. And he stopped and never tried it again. Now that was a person that for some people in the church highly respected their their spiritual walk. Amazed me. Did that kind of stuff. But you can bring these images in. This is not right. This is this is not good. This is what some of the, the people would do. Even in the some of the <clears throat> ultra prophetic things that are being done. This is uh, not short of soothsaying. And people are bringing this into the church. 
prophesy over this chair. Prophesy over, over this thing. And it's not by the Spirit of God anymore. So we got to be careful about that because we could be bringing those kind of images into a, into a church service. He talked about the sun worship. Well, how many Christians read their horoscopes each day and think nothing of it? I know nobody here does, but there are Christians who will see no harm in reading a horoscope. How's that not worshiping the, the sun god and, the, and the, the stars and the, the things that are out there? Don't be mixing it. And there'll be way before they had satellite radio. Most of the time I have uh, my phone playing something when I'm in the car. But if I'm, I'm driving, thank God for satellite radio because there was a couple of times I had just the regular station on and they, they started reading horoscopes. I couldn't change that station fast enough. I didn't even care what I changed it to. Just get that off. I don't, I don't even want to hear it. I've had people, Christian people, come up and try and tell me what I was. I don't know what I am because if they try to tell me, I just, I block it right out of my head. I'd have no, I, I don't want to know. But don't, don't be bringing this stuff in. That's going to be mixing the, the sun worship there. When they had that special room and the animal worship that would go on. How is that any different from churches today who side with these people that promote the rights of animals over the rights of people? You have churches, even now, who will fight for the right of abortion while protecting turtles, eagles. It's illegal to kill a eagle baby, but it's not illegal to kill a human baby. Isn't that amazing? Animal worship. You listen to a lot of these animal rights people and the animals are worth more than the people are. I know uh, from people I knew out in California that uh, an entire area was subject to drought and uh, orchards that had been around for hundred hundred years or so were allowed to die because they would not allow water to be diverted because it might hurt a small fish. They didn't know it would, but it might. And so because of that, people lost jobs, food wasn't produced, people didn't have food to eat, they would have uh, had to eat otherwise. I don't know that anybody starved as a result of it, but that area was not producing the food that it was able to produce before. There's an animal worship that's going on. And it goes on very strong in, in this country. But we have to be careful as churches that we don't worship the creature more than the Creator. And that's what God has warned us about. There's nothing wrong with uh, taking care of nature and doing good things for them. But God did not send His Son to die for eagles, turtles, and deers. He sent His Son to die for you. And other ones that make the the most, the most difference. Worship of nature. How many churches mix Christianity with New Age? Or they put nature on a pedestal over people. Talk about Mother Nature, and it seems like Mother Nature has a place over even God. These things, these four abominations, we can certainly see having place in our country. And certainly have in place even in some churches. 
People are standing in the office of a priest with no call from God and are mere shepherds for hire. They're out for personal gain. 25 people turn their backs to God to worship the Son. There are many people who take on the title of minister, pastor, apostle, prophet, whatever it might be that they have. But God didn't call them to that office. God didn't put them in that place. And they're just like these 25 here because they've turned their back on the things of God to promote the things of an idol. There are many people that have supposedly answered a call into the ministry but have gone after it with covetousness, gone after it to to get things for self-gain and have not become the servant that the Lord said we were to become. You see, they'll leave the Word of God, they'll leave His principles because their stated object, or their stated objective is not their goal. That's what we're talking about on Sunday. You've got to be careful with people who state an objective, but when the goal is realized, are never happy. If your stated objective is realized, you are happy. I'll give you an, an example of this. Remember in the Word of God where Jesus says that uh, all heaven rejoices when one comes. And it, it doesn't seem like he cares how they get there. It gives the story of the prodigal son. We don't care how you got here. You got here. And there's festivities and there's there's happiness about it. You see, because when God states an objective, that is His objective. There's many people in this world they state their objective because as long as I say that's what I'm going for, I have a free pass to do anything along the way. And these people in government, these people in churches, these people in whatever branch, whatever place they are, when they continually say this is what we are going to do but are not happy when they see it achieved, they are quite much... They've revealed themselves. They've exposed themselves. Because if an objective is your objective, you will be happy no matter who gets you there. Because that's the objective. So here in this chapter, so far on this vision, we got more of this vision to go. we got chapter 9, chapter 10, and chapter 11 to finish this one off. But here in this one, he's talking about a mix. Do not mix the things of God with the things of the world. And he does not take well to it being mixed. And he's taking him in here because he's already told him there is no mercy. There's no more mercy for them. Judgment is coming. And if you wonder why judgment is coming, this is why. Here's the first abomination. Here's the second. Here's the third. Here's the fourth. This is all done around the worship of Jehovah, the temple. This is all done to mixed in. What have we done for the nations when we have not stood aside and stood apart and shown that God is something different? Father, we thank you that we can heed the warnings of Ezekiel and we can learn not to mix the things of God with the things of men, but the things of God are separate they are holy. Just because men think something be to be good does not mean that we should think the way they think. 
We want to have your mind on things. And the things that are God's need to be pure. Help us, Father, that if we have ever allowed things of the world to mix in, that we purge it. That we clean it up. Father, we don't want to be guilty of mixing what shouldn't be mixed and going where we shouldn't be going. I thank you that you give us the wisdom to see the difference. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.